Happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Hope you had a good day spending time with friends and family, reflecting on, uh, on God's goodness, His blessing as we've been singing about this morning. Uh, we're going to start today with uh, a little bit of an exercise, and um, I realize in doing this I'm, I'm taking a bit of a risk, because there's a distinct chance that this won't go as I, as I think it might or envision it might in my head. And if that's the case, then, you know, we'll have a good laugh and we'll <laughs> move on from there. But, uh, but Sharon Berkey is going to kind of come up here with me. And uh, a few days ago, I sent Sharon a, a video clip of an invention. And uh, what she's going to do is describe this invention to you. And I didn't give her any, uh, any guidance, really, other than just saying you have to use words to describe it. So this is solely from her. And we'll see if it fits with how, how I hope it's gonna <laughs> gonna fit this morning. So, yeah, there you go. Okay, this invention is a piece of equipment that allows me to achieve a full body workout using it either inside or outside. Because my body is lifted off the ground, I can actually run or walk using less than half my body weight, allowing less pressure on my knees and hip joints. It is also used as a rehab in rehab facilities, allowing elderly patients to be more active with ease. It assembles and disassembles easily for convenient transport and fits easily in the trunk of a car. It costs $1,650. What is it, you may ask? Yeah, you can say the name, yeah. A glide cycle weightless run bicycle. Yeah, so if you had to, hold on just a second, just a second. So if you had to describe it, what would it be most similar to? Is there an object that it's, you know, if, that we look at that and we think it's like this, but it's not? Well, gosh, I don't know that I've ever seen anything that lifts you up and allows you to run. So it was odd. I don't know of anything else it's like. Okay. <laughs> so it didn't go quite, quite how I hoped it would go. <laughs> it, it is going or not going? Well, it's it'll not. be fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> That's all I know. <laughs> yeah, thanks. That's good. That's good. Thanks, Sharon. I, the, I do have a picture of it just because, you know, we, we're surely we're curious, right? I mean, this is, this is the, the, glide, the glide cycle that... Uh, Sharon was describing to you. I mean, I mean, the word glide cycle, even the name, you know, you're supposed to think of like a bicycle, right? Kind of, but, but not, obviously. It's different and it, you know, supports you. So, yeah, so that kind of went how I hoped it would, but that's, we'll be able to go from there. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, I, when, we, when we think about, you know, this, so this is an invention that, that somebody came up with, and, and, and when you think about describing it, um, I mean, there's, there's kind of steps in, in describing it. I mean, Sharon definitely talked about the, uh, uh, the, the ramifications, the impl impl implications of this, right? Like, it, you know, it, it, it allows you to run. It, it, it takes weight off knees and joints. And, it, you know, somebody who maybe couldn't run before could, you know, it, and it, uh, the video is better because when you see it in action, it's, you know, they're running as, you know, w with a bicycle type thing, but, but you see the implications there, and it kind of looks like a bicycle, a little bit, 
but it's not, right? It's, it's obviously something different from that. And, and so the reason I, I started with this exercise this morning is um, uh, we're going to see kind of some of those steps of describing in today's text, because Je Jesus is going to reveal something new about himself, something new about his identity and his purpose, and, and what he's going to reveal today really is, is a, it's, it's actually a monumental revelation. Um, it's something that would require a major shift in the thinking and understanding of those who are following Jesus, okay? And so, 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 so we'll begin uh, by, by looking, uh, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 9. So, so when we think about this glide cycle thing, like it's, it's kind of most like a bicycle. And, and because we've grown up in, in the time that we've grown up and where we've grown up, we know what a bicycle looks like. That, that's a concept that we are very, very easily able to, to bring to mind. We can picture a bicycle. And what Jesus does is, is he's leading into this monumental shift about, uh, about his identity is he brings the disciples to a common starting point. It's not picturing a bicycle, but it's picturing something else here. So, so if you look with me in uh, Luke chapter 9, we will start today in verse 18. And Luke writes, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the, dis uh, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. So, so recently in Luke's gospel, we've seen people wondering aloud about the identity of Jesus. Just even in the last couple chapters. So uh, in the story in chapter 7, uh, verse 49, where the, the sinful woman anointed and, and kissed uh, Jesus' feet, Simon the Pharisee wondered aloud, who is this? Who is this Jesus guy? Um, in the story in chapter 8, in verse 25, where, the, where, where Jesus calmed the storm and, and the disciples were in the boat and they asked themselves, who then is this? Who is this that can calm the storm? And then in the story uh, earlier in chapter 9, in verse 9, Herod had been, he'd heard about the work of Jesus and, 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 it, and what his disciples had been doing, and Herod himself asked, who is this? So John has woven this question, showing, showing uh, uh, situations where this question came up. He, he's brought it to light three times recently. And, and it's, so it's, it's, not a, it's not a new question. If it hasn't been on our mind as readers of Luke's gospel to this point, it, it should be on our mind. This is a question that's going to take front and center stage here. So in verse 18, that was the question Jesus used to communicate this startling new revelation to his disciples. He asked his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? Let's start there first. And, and, they, and the answer that they, give, that they gave was right in line with what Herod gave earlier in chapter 9. Uh, some thought uh, Jesus was John the Baptist and, and that the two were one and the same. And that seems to be the most common way that the crowds described Jesus. 
But, but not everyone, not everyone would have said John the Baptist. They go on, some would say Elijah, some considered Jesus to be another prophet from back in history who'd, who'd come back to life. But what we find out is that, you know, Jesus isn't really interested at this point in who the crowds think he is. I mean, that, that's, that's just the icebreaker question. That's, that's just the introductory question that's meant to prepare the disciples for the follow-up question that, that does matter. When he says, who do you think that I am? Who do you say that I am? It doesn't really matter what everyone else says about Jesus. What do you guys say about me? And of course, it's at that point that, <clears throat> that Peter gave uh, his famous answer, the Christ, the Christ of God. And, and some translations have uh, the Messiah, some have uh, the Anointed One. Uh, those are all valid translations that are all, all meaning the same thing. Uh, Christ is, is the Greek word uh, that comes from Christos. Uh, the Hebrew term that, that means Messiah, that it all means anointed, the anointed one. And, and to be anointed was significant, um, especially as, as seen in the Old Testament, because it was the way that, that both priests and kings were, were set apart. They were, they were set apart to carry out a specific function of, of either the priesthood or the kingship. They were anointed. It was, it was to be specifically and publicly set apart for a specific role. And so really what ended up happening is the term the Lord's anointed came to be synonymous with the Davidic king. It was just kind of another title used for the king in the line of David. So there's a very real sense in which Peter's statement here means that in his eyes, Jesus was the, the long-awaited set apart one who was, who was chosen to be, be this king in the line of David, who would sit on the throne, who would, who would rule God's people once again. And because of the political context that this all took place in, it's easy to understand why many would have anticipated that, that this new king would, would overthrow or, or at the very least drive out the Romans in order to establish this new kingdom. The statement that Peter's making is very much a religious statement, that you are the Christ, the Messiah, but there's a lot of political uh, undergirding to that. There's a, there's a picture there for how they think that would play out. So, so when Peter stated on behalf of, of the larger group that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, that there was that common understanding of, of what that would have meant. And even though that understanding was, was not the complete picture uh, of, of the real identity of Jesus, it, it, it was a common starting point. It, it, it gave somewhere to jump off from. You know, you think about the, that glide cycle. You know, we can all picture what a bicycle is. We can start there with that common starting point. Well, when Peter proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah. It's a good starting point for Jesus. He's going to go from there. And what he's going to go on to do then is say, okay, yes, yes, that is true. I'm the Messiah, but there's something different. There's, there's something, it's going to be different than what you are picturing. So look with me at verse 21. Because this is where Jesus makes this declaration that is truly a monumental shift for those who would have heard it. 
Verse 21 says, he strictly, uh, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus didn't refute Peter's statement. He didn't say, no, no, Peter, you're way off. Uh, I mean, Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And, and, and really, for, for us as readers of Luke's gospel, that's not really any big surprise at this point. Uh, I mean, uh, if you go back to the, the Christmas story at the beginning of Luke's gospel in chapter 2, the, the, the angel speaking to the shepherds out in the field, he, he, he referred to the newborn Jesus as the Christ, as this anointed one. So we've heard it from the angel. Uh, if you go forward a little bit to, uh, to the temple, uh, Luke himself, as the narrator of the story, refers to the infant Jesus as the Lord's Christ. So we get another proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, in chapter four, Jesus rebuked the demons. He, he wouldn't let them, uh, they wouldn't, he wouldn't let them speak because he was the Christ and they knew he was the Christ and that he wasn't ready for that proclamation to be made yet. And then Jesus himself in Luke chapter four referred to himself as the anointed one by the spirit of the Lord. That's a, a, a clear messianic reference. So, so if we've been paying attention in Luke's gospel up to this point, even if we knew nothing about Jesus before reading his gospel, we should know that Jesus is the Messiah. That, that title shouldn't be a surprise to us. It, it's par for the course up to this point. But what absolutely should shock the reader and the disciples who were there with Jesus is this statement in verse 22, that the Christ would suffer and that he would be rejected and that he would be killed. That, that is a monumental shift in the storyline. And again, because we've heard that a lot and that's maybe not new to us, we can, we can kind of gloss over that, but that is huge, what is taking place right here. It's this shift in the understanding of the identity and the purposes of Jesus. You know, yes, he's the Messiah, but it's gonna look a lot different than what they're picturing in their mind. And up to this point, Luke has been communicating to us miracle after miracle that Jesus has been performing, almost in rapid fire succession. I mean, healing diseases, uh, casting out demons, calming storms, multiplying food, raising the dead, and all of that would have fit perfectly with, with this all-powerful Messiah who would come and would just powerfully establish his kingdom on earth, and he would rule over it as king, and that all made sense. But to truly understand Jesus' identity as the Messiah, a person also has to grasp the fact that Jesus came to earth to suffer and, and to be rejected and to die. And that wouldn't have fit so well with the picture that many had. And, and making that switch isn't, isn't simple. It's not as easy as just flipping a light switch. Oh, okay, Jesus. I mean, that is a huge shift in a way of thinking. And, and, and Luke doesn't tell us in his gospel, but Matthew and Mark both tell us that, uh, 
that Peter struggled mightily with that new revelation. And, and Peter rebuked Jesus and basically told him, don't talk like that, Jesus, that, that, that can't be right. I mean, Jesus as the suffering Messiah did not fit with Peter's framework of, of who the Messiah should be and how the Messiah should act. It did not fit. And instead of changing his framework, his, his initial response was to reject it and say, no, Jesus, that, that, that can't be the case. It has to be like how we're thinking, right? And then, of course, Jesus says, you know, get behind me, Satan, and shows that this monumental revelation really is accurate. It is the truth, and that Peter and everyone else is going to need to come to grips with it. And, and you know, you, we think about our context. Many of us here this morning may have heard that truth about Jesus being the suffering Messiah. We've maybe heard that many times throughout our lives, and so we've had, we've had adequate time to, to alter our framework of understanding regarding the identity of, of Jesus, the purposes of Jesus. But that may not be the case for all of us. I, I mean, uh, for some, you maybe haven't heard quite as much that, that, that uh, Jesus is this suffering Messiah, that he's the divine son of God who would suffer and die, that that might be a new concept. Or maybe, maybe some have heard it before, but, but, but not really stopped to think about the implications of that. Say, well, yeah, that, you know, I get it, but, but really what does that mean? And, and so, you know, if, if that's the case for you this morning, I, I'd like to facilitate the processing of this statement that Jesus made, because it, it is a statement that we have to, to chew on and to, to wrestle with, right? And, and so we think about that statement, and, you know, the, the, the first thing that I, I think about is that, you know, the fact that God himself, who is the rightful king of the world, rightful king of the world, would suffer and die on the cross for you and me, speaks to his incredible love for you and me. I mean, I, I don't think there's any way around that. I mean, tell me the last time that a, a historical ruler or a contemporary ruler gave up his or her own life in loving sacrifice for those that they were ruling over. I mean, that, that, that's not a common, <laughs> common action for rulers in our world. Jesus going before the, the powerful men of his day as a sheep before the shearers is silent, as scripture says. It speaks so clearly to his love for you and me. He willingly gave his life that you and I might benefit personally and eternally from his sacrifice and from his death. And, and I think second, Jesus is not a God bent on on a personal gain to the destruction of everyone and everything around him. And, you know, it's kind of the flip side of this first point we're talking about, um, but still worth contemplating on its own, that if all Jesus cared about was coming back to the earth and forcefully taking back what was rightfully his, just fully unconcerned about the wake of destruction behind him, you know, he, he would have never gone to the cross in order to secure the victory. You know, a, a God looking out for himself, 
would have come in guns blazing, just wholly unconcerned about any kind of collateral damage that would come. But that's not Jesus. That's not the Messiah that Jesus is. Maybe that was a picture of the Messiah that that, uh, the Jews may have had, but that's not Jesus. And then, you know, something else we can take from this, the, the Son of God really is fully human, along with being fully divine. If Jesus were not fully human, then he would not be able to suffer physically and ultimately die a physical death. You have to be human to be able to do that. The, the crucifixion verifies the humanity of Jesus in a way that, that nothing else does, really. Crucifixion verifies that. So Jesus is not some disconnected God, unable to relate to us. He's fully human and thus able to relate to us. I mean, all of that is, is packed into it, its implications of this statement that Jesus is making here. And again, so those are just, you know, the few of the things that I see when considering what Jesus says in verse 22. And if you haven't allowed that understanding of, of Jesus to, to challenge your own previous expectations of him, chew on it. Do that. You know, process that, that statement. That's what Jesus wanted his disciples to do here. I think as, as people today, that's what he wants us to do as well. So, so Jesus started with the disciples. He had that common starting point. He said, you know, who do people say I am? Peter says the Messiah. Ding, ding, right answer. But then he said, but not that kind of Messiah. And so he shifted and said, but it's a little different. You know, I'm the Messiah who's going to suffer, I'm going to die. And then he moved on from there and talked about the implications. So we think about that, that glide cycle. It's kind of like a bike but not really, but here's what that means, right? We can, you know, have weight taken off joints, run, be more mobile. Jesus, in his next words, goes into what does that mean? If Jesus is the suffering Messiah who's going to be rejected and die, what does that mean for his followers? And so look with me at verse 23. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of of the holy angels." But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So, so for those of us who've, who've heard many times that Jesus is the suffering Messiah, and we've, we've contemplated that in our minds, and, and we've come to accept him as the suffering Messiah, this is where the rubber meets the road. Because if I'm going to be a disciple of a suffering Messiah, and if I'm going to follow a suffering Messiah, what does that mean then for how I live my life? What are the implications of that? And that's what Jesus gets into here. And, and I, would, I would say 
This has got to be one of the most difficult passages to preach in the American church today when we think about our own context. And I think there's a couple reasons that, that uh, this is a pretty difficult passage to preach. Uh, one of the reasons is I think it can be easy to just look at this and, and, and preach it in a way that, that really just leaves everyone feeling guilty because no one is ever fully living up to this difficult calling by Jesus, right? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we haven't arrived when it comes to this passage. There's always more time that can be volunteered or more money that can be given away or, or more attention paid to somebody else or, or more sacrifices to be made. And, and, and when the guilt is piled on, all, we, all that ends up happening is we just look around and start comparing ourselves to somebody else. And once we find somebody that we feel like we're doing a little better job, okay, now I'm good, right? And, and I just, that's not, man, that's, that's not, um, it's not helpful. I don't think that's, I don't think it's, Productive. I don't think it's sustainable. Um, so, so my goal this morning is not to pile on guilt on top of us, just kind of hoping that it will lead to a little bit of short-term change. Like that, that, that's not the goal I want to drive toward this morning. And, and another reason I think this is a difficult passage to preach is, uh, as I said, is the context in which we find ourselves. Uh, we are a generally well-off people. From the, from the standpoint of finances and possessions. I mean, we just are. Uh, we're also people used to having uh, freedoms of many different kinds. Uh, we're also people who live in a very individualistic society, and, and when all of that is working together, these words can really rub us in some uncomfortable ways, I think, if we're being honest about it. Um, you know, when Jesus said that it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, he knew what he was talking about, and, and this kind of hints toward that. You know, we, we have lots of things today that can distract us from, uh, from following our Savior. And so, so all of that to say, I, I, I don't want to discredit that understanding of, of this text, what it calls us as American Christians to do, to cling to Jesus, to let go of the things that, that can entangle us and distract us. I, I don't want to discredit that. That, that. that is a valid understanding that, that, the, that the Holy Spirit can and I think does speak to us about. But what I do want to do this morning is, is stay focused on the context of the passage and how the disciples would have heard it because they're the first ones that Jesus is speaking to here. And I think there's a real sense in which Jesus' words, his statement, caused their thinking to have to change regarding all that was going on around them. You know, what they maybe considered to be a popular movement that they were a part of had to shift to being more of a personal calling instead of a popular movement. So, so it, when you think about Jesus' ministry up to this point, it probably felt like a popular movement, right? You have Jesus performing all of these miracles. People are in awe. People have, have wonder about it. The crowds are growing. The crowds track Jesus down when he leaves. I mean, it, it feels like Jesus is leading a movement and perhaps the disciples even started to see themselves as leaders in that movement. 
course, Jesus is at the top, but, but they're right below him, right? I mean, I mean, even being sent out earlier in chapter nine to preach the message and to perform these miracles maybe led them to kind of having this, this idea that uh, they were quite important in this movement. And, and you know, just as, as things were beginning to take off and, and, and things were gaining steam, Jesus hits the brakes with a statement like this. If he, had, if he had continued performing all kinds of miracles, you know, drawing in bigger and bigger crowds, it, it would have just kind of stoked the fire. But, but a statement like this, I mean, that's like taking a bucket of water and just throwing it on the movement. We, you know, I mean, come on. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. That, that's not a, I don't, I don't know that there was a standing ovation <laughs> after that statement was made. And so if the disciples were planning to participate in this movement that was going to grow and expand and, and take over the world by, by force and power and control, their bubble is popped right here. I mean, th- th- there's just no way around that. His kingdom would grow and it, and it would expand, but, but it's not going to be like that. Instead, it's going to grow as people are willing to lose their life, as Jesus says. In a physical sense, yeah, you know, being willing to die for Jesus, uh, but, but in a spiritual sense as well, uh, being willing to, to, uh, to sacrifice, to give of yourself totally to Jesus and to what he's calling you to. So, so for the disciples and any who would follow after Jesus, the calling he gives is to deny oneself and take up one's cross daily and follow him. That, that's, that's the calling. And, and, and when we read this today, our, our minds can quickly go to things like money and possessions. And again, I think that's a valid and valid uh, interpretation of that. But I don't think that's the disciples' context. I mean, these guys had already left family. And they'd already left professions. They'd already left possessions to follow Jesus. Uh, uh, we just saw in the story from last week with the feeding of the 5,000, they had five loaves of bread. That, that's all, that, it wasn't even enough for them. So, so th- there's not a lot of things that the disciples have left <laughs> to give away. So the question is, what did they have? If they're going to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus, what are the disciples being called to here? And I think in light of Jesus' increasing popularity and his increasing following by the crowds, I think what the disciples had was influence and power in that, right? I mean, they were the inner circle of of this growing movement. And then they were, man, there's this popular miracle worker that's driving it and there it's 12 disciples and they have, they have, uh, you know, they have the in. And, and we're going to see next week, I, you know, we'll see next week them arguing about who's the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. And I think it just reinforces that, that what they were called to lay down wasn't necessarily the money and possessions and things, but it was, it was the power and the influence. And so if his disciples are going to deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow him, then they're going to have to cast aside that, that notion of personal fame or, or glory or power or whatever they had in mind. You know, uh, Jesus was on his way to suffer. 
and he was on his way to be rejected, and he was on his way to die, and if his disciples are going to carry on that work, then they have to be prepared to do the same, and, and it's what Jesus is calling them to. And so if we can take that context and then jump to today, um, again, I, you know, there's, there's no doubt that money can sidetrack us, possessions can sidetrack us um, as individuals or, or as, as the larger church of God. Um, but I, I really do think power is a bigger danger for the church and for individual believers. Um, uh, and, and if you don't believe me, come join our Sunday school class where we're looking at church history. And there's one thing that keep, one theme that keeps coming up over and over and over again. And man, when the church strives for power, bad things happen. And we see it over and over and over again. But it's not just past church history. I, you see it today in the church as well. There are, there are pastors of churches, large and small, just crashing and burning all over the place because of the struggle for power. There are, there are believers in, in uh, our context wedding themselves to, to um, politics or specific politicians in a struggle for power. I mean, there are, there are denominations uh, seemingly covering up instances of abuse in a struggle to retain power. I mean, uh, this power is such a, such a dangerous thing for individual believers and for the church to pursue. And, and, and when you think about it, a, a group of people can gather together and, and read the Bible and sing songs and give money and build friendships but unless they're striving in God's power to deny themselves and take up their cross daily, they're really not any different than the world around them. I mean, theologians can read the Bible and choirs can sing songs and philanthropists can give money and, and elementary kids can make friends at school. But, and those are, those are, those are good things, but, but the hallmark of a follower of Jesus is to, like Jesus, deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. That's, that's what sets apart followers of Jesus. And so, so I think in that we have to examine ourselves and see, is there a striving for power or for money or, or for anything else that I, can, that I can find within myself? And if I do find that within myself, then... I've got to ask God to help me crucify that, crucify it with its passions and desires as we read in Scripture. I, I, think, I think that is part of what Jesus means when he says take up our cross daily, to crucify those passions and desires that, that lead us to pursue all those other things. Uh, uh, Jesus went to the cross not just to forgive those things, that's part of it, but also to set us free from it to be free from those passions and desires. And so followers of Jesus must deny themselves and, and walk in that freedom, walk in that, that, those crucified passions and desires and you know, deny themselves, take up their cross daily. It's what, it's what we're called to. And I came across a, a uh, statement 
And I want to end with this statement. Uh, it's by R.C. Sproul. I think he just hit the nail on the head perfectly. I, you know, when I, when I read it, I was like, man, this is, <laughs> he got it. You know, if you can sum it all up in a nice, succinct statement, I think this is what it is. R.C. Sproul said this. He said, you either deny Christ and follow yourself, or you deny yourself and follow Christ, because you can't follow Christ and yourself. Man, and I'll say it again because it's so good. You either deny Christ and follow yourself, or you deny yourself and follow Christ, because you can't follow Christ and yourself. I think that just hits it. We are called as disciples of Jesus to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. And that, again, there, there might have to be a shift of thinking there, just like the disciples needed to, to undergo, and, and, and maybe us as well. Think about what kind of Messiah is Jesus really? You know, if I can give a little teaser for next week, the outline for the sermon next week is very close to the one for this week, because in case the disciples and others missed it, he's going to go on and confirm it. <laughs> and so if we think that, you know, we can kind of have an out, I think Jesus is going to say, no, no, I was, I was serious. This, this really is the, the calling that I'm, that I'm placing on my followers. And so I would encourage us, I guess, you know, in the week upcoming especially to, you know, to dwell on, on, on the, those statements, what Jesus says there, verse 22 down through 27, to dwell on it, to chew on it, to think, um, think about the implications of it. And then we can come back next week and, and kind of be affirmed in, in what Jesus said previously, that, that uh, uh, he, he really was serious about it, that he's calling us to that. So would you stand with me? Let's, uh, let's come before God. I mean, th th this, is a, this is a calling that we need to be empowered to live out. It's one that on our own we're definitely not going to do. And so let's ask God to, to lead us in that. Father, we, we come to you. Uh, and we come to you... Uh, hopefully clearly hearing this call that you've placed on your followers. It's this call to, to lay down all those things that, uh, that can pull us, that can, can take our time and attention and energy and focus. And, and what, you, what you call us to do is to, to give it up, give up our life. And as we do that, we're promised to find it. So I pray for, for myself that, uh, that I would not forget that, that I would not doubt it, that in a world that tells me to pursue all those other things, that I'd remember that I'm not a follower of this world, I'm a follower of you. I pray that for all of us here. Help us to, to recognize those specific instances where we can deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. Help us to have that general mindset, but also to see in daily life how that's lived out, what that means for us. Father, I, I, I thank you that you that you love us so much that you that you came to earth as that.
kind of Messiah. That you went to the cross. That you won the victory. But that you also include us in that victory. That you give us forgiveness and, and redemption. And that we can take part in your glory as well. You didn't have to do that, but because of your love, you did. And, and we, we give you praise for that. In my prayers that, that we would be a church body continually growing in this, this discipleship call that you've placed on us. God, give us the power to do that. Give us the wisdom to do that. Give us the courage to do that. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.